episode 145 of Some Like It Scott. I'm your host, Scott Harvey, and I'm joined, as always, by my co-host, Scott Shelton. Today on the podcast, we review the latest Joker-fied villain origin story to hit the big screen, Disney's Cruella. But first, how are you, Scott? I'm doing pretty well. Can't complain too much. It's a beautiful weekend here in New York City. A little too hot, I guess. I guess I can't complain. It's too hot. Uh, So hot that I was inspired to see two movies yesterday indoors to avoid the heat. But overall, doing pretty well. What is hot uh, in New York terms? I'm curious to know. It's what, in the mid nineties. Okay. The All right. Well, that's that would be considered hot anywhere. I just, I didn't know if uh, living in the the Northeast, living in New England um, for the last however many years has yeah, changed almost, your almost eight years conception, changed your conception of what you know hot is. But um, no, I guess it gets pretty hot up there too during the summer. It does. It, it, the thing, I guess, it's like a little bit less hot on average. But it still gets like hot in the summer. Like it's not. Yeah. not look, yeah. I don't think I've ever had a day over a hundred degrees up here. Which I mean that that happened not uncommonly, I guess, in the summer down south. Mm-hmm. But at some point, like I don't. Once you get like mid nineties, like it doesn't really matter whether it's mid nineties yeah. or like low hundreds. Yeah. Like I don't think it doesn't. It just feels really hot, overwhelmingly so. Yeah, I mean, it sounds like it was it was hotter there than it was here. It was it was in the it was oh, in the eighties yeah. here yesterday, but um, it was. I went to. A, minor league baseball game last night and it was perfect weather for that the sun wasn't like beating down or anything Mm -hmm. um and you know the the sun went down eventually the game started at six something and it felt wonderful it couldn't have couldn't have asked for better weather so that was uh it was fun to be you know we've talked about being back at the uh the movie theater um Mm -hmm. but being back at the ballpark last night was another great experience because obviously that's something i love to do and Absolutely. Uh, picked, a, picked a good night to do it. So the world is, or, order is being restored, and uh, I'm happy to see it, as I'm sure everyone else is. Yeah, t- talk about order being restored. That My two theatrical movie experiences yesterday, not to talk about the movies at all, but one of them was at a um, boutique cinema uh, that really values itself in the quality of the experience that you get. And everyone there like was wearing their mask. They required you to wear your mask indoors still on uh, this particular place. And then my next uh, experience was at AMC. I went from, from one to the other and just like absolute, <laughs> it, the juxtaposition Anarchy. of that is just like absolute dumpster fire of an experience mm-hmm. comparatively. Um, like, you know, people, I mean, obviously if you're not allowed to take your mask off in the theater, you're not going to be eating popcorn etc but like at the amc like i was watching wrath of man which was the guy Ritchie movie uh the latest guy Ritchie movie and people were just like god it i i mean not that i don't already value like really high quality experiences like you might get at an alamo draft house which we've talked about before um arc light in boston when i when that was open for the brief few months before uh the pandemic started and then at lincoln center which is where i was yesterday for like the boutique uh indie theater but Man, when you when you put them right next to each other, when you literally go from one to the other, it's very stark, and it makes sense why, you know, I can pay a subscription fee at AMC to watch three movies a week, and why I can be a member at the other place and still pay for tickets. Like every time you yeah. go, it's such a different experience. But yeah, the real purpose of the story was to say that even with that really what I'll say like lower quality uh, movie theater experience that I got at AMC, I think the real progress is that feeling comfortable being around that again. As opposed to, you know, being overly anxious constantly about it. Um, yeah. You know, I think I've been a little bit slower to be comfortable with it than, say, you. Um, even though you've also talked about on here how you're getting more comfortable with it as well. And, um, but yeah, it's definitely feeling progress. Yeah, no, uh, it's we're we're almost there. We're almost there. We're in the the last leg. But Scott, as mentioned, let's get to our movie today, and that movie is. Uh, the latest Disney live-action adaptation, Cruella, which tells the origin of the iconic villain Cruella DeVille from the 101 Dalmatians franchise. Directed by Craig Gillespie, the film opens in London with us meeting young Estella Miller, 
a fashion-obsessed schoolgirl with a rebellious attitude that has won her the ire of many peers and adults. When tragedy strikes Estella's family, however, Estella is forced to shack up with a pair of young grifters named Horace and Jasper, and the trio soon begin a, a ring of petty crime to help ensure their survival on the streets of London. Soon, 10 years have passed, and an adult Estella, now played by Emma Stone, gets handed her dream opportunity when she gets a job at the prestigious Liberty Department Store. Her eye for fashion quickly wins her the approval of celebrity designer Baroness von, Baroness von Hellman, played by Emma Thompson, and in the blink of an eye, Estella becomes the Baroness's right-hand woman and chief creative mind. However, as Estella dives deeper into the world of London high society, she uncovers some long-buried secrets that may require her to harness a dark side she has suppressed for many years, even if it means testing her friendships with Horace and Jasper, played in adulthood by Paul Walter Hauser and Joel Fry. Scott, does Gillespie's stylized look at a classic Disney villain offer pulpy thrills, or is Cruella another IP-driven cash grab from the mouse that's better off as a Dalmatian spinner? <laughs> that's nice. I like that one. Um, I, Scott, I, I think it's a tough sell to call this one a cash grab, because I don't think that there's any way that this movie makes its budget back. I mean, this was a pre-pandemic Maybe at the time it was meant to be a cash grab. I don't know. But I say that. And when you look at something like Craig Gillespie, who, for context, for people who don't know who Craig Gillespie is, he's the director of I, Tanya, which was a very stylized biopic of Tanya Harding's life set to pretty much a, a banger of a soundtrack uh, with some really thrilling, for the lack of a better way to put it, I suppose, um, figure skating performances in that film. And so it's not immediately obvious necessarily how that sort of flair and style that you'd get in something like an Itania where it really fits in with the narrative being told how that translates over to a, a Disney live action prequel um, and as film Twitter from what I've seen has really liked to describe it as the feel-good prequel story about a woman who goes on to you know skin dogs uh, which I think is just really low-hanging fruit for criticism and doesn't I think it's kind of lazy but um, overall Though, in spite of my skepticism of how that style translates over from one to the other, somehow it really does. I mean, this, this movie is like really stylish um, in a different way than Itania was. Like Itania is stylized from its like, again, its soundtrack, its its beats, um, quite literally. And, um, you know, it's, it's performance from Margot Robbie. And this, although Emma Stone may not quite be Margot Robbie necessarily, I think that Emma Stone gives quite a stylish performance as this sort of glam punk rockish figure in 1960s 1970s london 70s yeah. 70s yeah because i guess the, the film started in the 60s and 10 years later um and yes there is a fashion element to the film which there is style in that but also there's style of the style almost involved with it as well and the amount of music that this film uh, injects into itself that Craig Gillespie injects into this film and and manages to to set the narrative to was really like frankly quite astounding. It felt like it was even more music than was in Itania. To be honest, it barely felt like there was only like Definitely. a handful of minutes in this film where there wasn't some sort of like seventies rock song in the background, which I found like a little bit a little bit bothersome at times. But like for the most part, I was like, man, this should be like really annoying, like how much music there is. But like. I think for the most part, I like really enjoy it and really like it. I think the performances are really fun. Like Emma Stone is like somehow perfectly cast in this role. And I have no idea how, um, how this casting worked out so well. I think Joel Fry and Paul Walter Hauser are, you know, fun little sidekicks. Uh, Paul Walter Hauser, especially is clearly just having the time of his life uh, with his English, <laughs> with his like Cockney accent that he's going on about going on with. You know, Scott is shaking his head and not a fan of, but I just thought it was hilarious. <laughs> No, I, I, it, it is hilarious. It fits the tone of the movie, but it is not a good accent. Oh, no, no, no not yeah. at all. Yeah, no, not a good accent whatsoever. Um, but and, and then Emma Thompson, just like, I don't know, just living out her archetypal British mustache twirling villain and in female form, I guess. I mean, she's, she's just basically a, a British Miranda from The Devil Wears Prada. Yeah, no, absolutely. I mean, I you know, I saw a lot of compare like a lot of comparisons that you alluded to, like the Joker the Joker comparison, you know, meshed with Devil Wears Prada. And that's like probably fair, 
right? But like the difference is between this and especially Joker, like this movie knows what it is. And Joker has no idea what, what movie it is. Um, and Craig Gillespie is just there to like make something that's like a lot of fun that, you know, it's not going to reopen theaters, but people who watch this in theaters, people who watch, you know, pay the $30 price tag on, on Disney Plus for the whole family to watch it, like they're going to have a good time. And I frankly had a really great time when I saw this in theaters on opening night. Yeah, it's interesting the discussion of whether this was a cash grab or not. Um, because I feel like maybe like public opinion just leading up to this movie may have changed, you know, the financial potential of the movie. Because I think when they, uh, when the trailer came out, I mean, people were skeptical about the movie from the beginning, I feel like. But then the trailer came out and there was a lot of, you know, there was a lot of taking the piss, um, for lack of a better phrase, on Twitter that was going on um, out of, you know, again, the trailer and what's the point of this movie? Do we really need um, an origin story about this character? And Yeah. And how are they going to iron over all of the the cracks in this character's background that we've seen in other films that, I mean, she's a straight up villain, right? She skins. Capital stuff. V. Like, that is she's her, a capital V villain. That is her, you know, MO. How are we going to turn this into a, uh, you know, into a sort of anti-hero type story? But um yeah, so that, so that may have changed, you know, sort of what the the uh, expectations were, maybe in the end, from a from a financial perspective. But yeah, Gillespie is an interesting director for this, and I think what we see now from this movie is that he is finding a niche because you know if you look at his filmography, like he's he was kind of a journeyman director for many years, um, who just had his hand in all kinds of pots. I mean, you know, he did everything from Mister Woodcock that. Billy Bob Thornton comedy to like an inspirational Disney sports movie, like a uh, million, million dollar arm to fright the fright night remake. Um, you know, he's all over the place, kind of trying everything. And then with I, Tonya, right. He had his first real movie that really caught people's eyes. Um, and I think he has tried to mimic that, you know, a, a lot of the success of that film with this movie. Yes, there are certainly differences, but I think, you know, the, the needle drops, like you mentioned, I think are, is the, the, first thing that sticks out about um, both films, um, but also just sort of the storytelling techniques in a way like, you know, I, Tanya has like some voiceover and also like those little like documentary-esque segments, you know, threaded between the scenes um, where characters are like talking directly into the camera about the story. And Cruella also has a heavy use of voiceover. Um, there's a lot of um, Emma Stone, uh, you know, just sort of She's narrating the story. She's parts narrating. of the story. Yeah. yeah. Um, narrating parts of the story um and so yeah he, he definitely it definitely seems like he's found his groove a little bit i don't know i don't know how he's gonna be able to continue you know doing this type of movie and not seem tired after a while but i also had a very good time with this movie i think it's you know it's certainly not perfect it's certainly not a five star 10 out of 10 movie but it is probably the best version of this cruella movie that could ever be made if we're being quite honest um because, yeah, I mean, I, I really didn't have any desire to see this until I saw, you know, that there were some good reviews that were coming out and that, uh, you know, just sort of how it was it was being described, you know, with this sort of punk glam rock type, you know, feel to it felt like, you know, something that I might enjoy. And, yeah, I did. It's it's a fun movie. Um, yeah, I, I, I think I'm with you that, you know, I don't think we need to think too much about the long ranging implications of you know, the, what this means for the other 101 Dalmatians film. Although, you know, it, it's going to, it's going to be a little harder to avoid that now that they've already greenlit a sequel for, for this Cruella movie. Um, so at some point it seems like there's going to have to like, the rubber is going to have to meet the road, you know, and that's where you're going to have Scott, to, the, the rubber will never have to meet the road. I mean, yeah, pr probably not. Right. The D Disney's never going to like go full, like, give us, you know, go full Joker, I guess is, it would be the way to describe it. Um, and give us, you know, a quote unquote a hero who is actually, you know, killing dogs, but oh, I can't, um, I can't wait for like the, the comic book bros to get, sink their teeth into Corella too, where she's, where she, at the end of the movie, she literally kills a dog. Yeah. Yeah. Um, but the it's point so is, edgy. I, I think you should just, you know, have have a fun time with this movie. Don't think too much about it. I mean, if if you're someone out there who is really reading, like, I really don't Deep think... Deep in lore. <laughs> I don't think the 101 Dalmatians franchise is probably worth the effort that you are expending on it. That's all I will say. Um, <laughs> well, that's but, the thing, right? Yeah. To go back to the cash grab question before we move on, though, the reason why I think that this, that you can look at this and be like, this, like, this is not 
at least not a typical Disney crash grab because this film is PG-13. Yes. If if Disney was trying to make a cash grab out of this thing, this film would be PGAF. Like there, there, this thing would not be anywhere near PG thirteen if this if this were a real yeah. cash grab from Disney. And that and that's fair. I, I do think a fair number of kids are still going to see it. Like I I feel like nowadays sure. the, yeah. the ratings don't mean as much as they did back when we were kids, even because I don't know. I just feel like shifting morals in society, maybe. Um, I think have, that's probably fair, but yeah. I think from a studio perspective, especially with someone like Disney, like like every one of the other of their live action remakes, I guarantee you they're all people. Oh yeah, like I guarantee. Oh you yeah, no, they they definitely are. I don't I don't think they've. they've and there's gone a reason. Like they're supposed to be like you know they're fun for the whole family, right? Like that. Yeah, it's the, uh, it's, the it's the Mickey Mouse. And I yeah I I still think the PG thirteen is a little bit of a misnomer. Like this could have been a PG movie in my opinion, but like. There, you know, pe- there are people who die, right? There are, you know, are a couple of intense sequences, I guess. You know, there is, yeah. Um, Cruella, you know, is again it, is a villain. Kids, kids will know the will be familiar with the character of Cruella. Probably will. Will they have have kids seen One Hundred One Dalmatians these days? I don't even know. Have Maybe they? the live action one. I don't know. Um, but um, because obviously there's been a few um, adaptations. But anyway, the movie is a lot of fun. I think I really like the performances. I think everyone understood the assignment, so to speak, uh, in terms of what type of movie they were making. Um, I agree with you. I think the needle drops. He may have just taken it a a step too too far. Yeah, it's like a little too many. It's not. It's not as uh, aggressive as some people are are suggesting that it was just like exhausting. I I didn't. I don't know that I really felt like that. I still think it was the right approach for this movie. But you know, there doesn't need to be one every single time like a character enters a room um that that's kind of my my whole thing because it 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 when you oversaturate it and it, again it didn't really reach that point of oversaturation but it was getting close it it takes the impact out of you know Every the ones that, that you do have the ones that are really good in there um if you know you're just waiting for the next one to hit it was know, one of those things where it's minutes. it was two there were too many of them but mm-hmm. they were all still good and so that's yeah. like that's what like pushes you through it right because like another director i don't know Maybe one called Zack Snyder. Like, doesn't like if he were having this many needle drops in his movie, like he'd probably like I don't know, like cut your ears off or something. Like, it'd just be and awful. again, that's another that's another sort of adult oriented element of the movie because uh, you know these are seventies songs, right? Like the kids are not going to know many of the songs that are played in this movie. But I mean, you know, you're getting the Rolling yeah. Stones, um, you know, and uh, you know all all kinds of artists. Like again, it's uh, anyone you could think of from the seventies, like British Invasion. Yeah. type era is in the movie somewhere but yeah. um, my, my only other high level comment that i want to make is that i've also seen this criticism online of like oh like craig gillespie is saying that like cruella invented punk rock i'm like dude you're just like reading this this film like way too seriously wow i've not seen that <laughs> i mean that yeah down. that's like that that's kind of like the whole uh jazz criticism thing that goes of on La 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 Land. Land. Yeah. yeah. But we don't we don't I, I think I think that, that this that this criticism is even crazier than that one though. But yeah. I also agree that that one's probably speaking like, of right. speaking of La La Land, Scott, Emma, Emma Stone, Stone uh, yeah. is the star of this film. Um you know probably again another what may have been viewed as a strange choice at the time. She's not British, right? Um I don't know that um we necessarily knew that she yeah. had sort of this punk rock side in her. Um but um, what did you think about her performance uh, in the title role? I love this performance, Scott. I think it's fantastic. I think it's a fantastic performance. I certainly didn't think she was the right woman for the job when, when the casting was announced. Um, but, you know, we t- we talked very, very, very briefly about this last week. But, like, I don't know. I think Emma Stone might be, you know, your utility knife of an actress. Like, she can do just about anything she sets her mind to. I guess she hasn't herself been a superhero yet. But like, look, I mean, there's like a thousand more characters. To, uh, yeah. <laughs> there's like a thousand more characters that are, I'm sure, will enter the MCU at some point. So I'm, I'm sure she's on the list. Um, like you say that, but like Florence Pugh is in, in the MCU now. She's going to be a superhero. So there you go. Um, I yeah, but I don't know whether that's a good thing or not. Oh, we'll see. We'll see in a couple of weeks. Um, although I, I don't know if she'll be a hero in a couple of weeks. But anyway, I think that she's really good in, in this role. Quite enjoyable. I, I mean, look like. This version of Corella is going to be like your hot, fashionable, sexy, I don't know, Anne Hathaway from Devil Wears Prada, right? And like Emma Stone freaking crushes that. Like she's really hot in this movie. She's she's like on fire uh, in this role. She has this like this sort of like charm, charisma, 
mystique about her um, having this sort of like, I don't want to say dual personality, although it certainly bends that direction at times, but having this sort of like alter ego of Cruella. Um, and, and she balances that with Estella like perfectly. I think this is a really fun movie. Um, and a lot of that fun and charm starts with her, I think, and then is sort of complemented by a lot of other different pieces. But I think that she brings that the much needed charisma and sort of like look into the camera, wink a little bit and, you know, go back to the scene that you're playing. Uh, she brings that to the film and, and she rocks at it. Yeah, uh, I mean, it's a great performance. It absolutely is. I think, again, she understood the assignment, which is the key thing, right? Like she she really leans into like the high camp feel. Yeah, of absolutely. The movie. And, you know, that I mean, I think that's important because um because Emma Thompson is obviously at that level, like from the very beginning and eventually <laughs> yeah, they're, they, they are, you know, meant to be sort of warring, um, you know, individuals, uh, you know, I guess we're getting into spoilers a little bit, but yeah, basically she goes into the Cruella persona because she's trying to get revenge on the Baroness um, for, you know, being involved with her mother's death um, those many years ago. But yeah, she she sells both sides of it, right? Like the again, the high camp stuff when she gets into the Cruella. Yeah. Um, Look, character. you're not taking oh. yourself too seriously in the movie when you basically spray paint the future onto your face. Yeah, I mean that yeah. is that is straight down the middle. But also, um, you know, I think she's at, at home in the Estella role of like you know being sort of the you know buttoned up, like in glasses, a little bit awkward, a little bit fumbling around and stuff um, type character that the other half of this character is. I, I do think that that actually, that role actually suits her well. Um, yeah. And so, yeah, but she, she's able to bring in that, that uh, big personality uh, of Cruella when she, she goes into that character. So I, yeah, I, I think, I think she's really strong um, and has definitely has the look um like they 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 nailed the look which i think was it was very important um again they nailed both the estella look i think and uh, the cruella look uh, the aesthetics of this movie and, in general are just like perfect yeah yeah no it, it has it has the you know set stylish 70s london feel that you would you would hope for for a movie with this setup but um yeah she's she's really good her british accent is whatever but that's on the level of you know the other ones in the movie uh, by non-British actors, yeah. of course. It's like half. Um, it's like half British and half American. Like, but Joel Fry and Emma Thompson. It's fine. British. It's campy. Um, yeah. And yeah, you know, I, I liked the slyness of her performance. I guess would be the the word that I would. Yeah, that's would a good use. way to describe it. Um, yeah. Supporting cast, Scott. We mentioned Emma Thompson. You know, she's the villain here. She's the Baroness. Um, Joel Fry, Paul Walter Hauser. Um, you know two characters who are two actors who, you know, come up uh, fairly often in these sort of sidekick or, um, you know, colorful supporting character uh, roles. Um, they're the, you know, the friends of, of Emma Stone's character, Horace and Jasper. Um, I'm trying to think if there's anyone else that I, really major that I'm leaving out here. Mark not, Strong. Not really. Yeah, of course. Yeah. Mark Strong um, plays sort of one of um, the Baroness's uh Benjamin, I don't even know what you, would, what you would call him. Yeah, employees. Um, and, you know, he, he probably doesn't have as much to do as you would expect when you see Mark Strong is in the movie. But, yeah, who stood out to you here? I think from a from a performance standpoint, it's like probably it's, it's probably Emma Thompson. I think if we're being honest, I think she's the one who I think in many ways are like she's the she's the real Cruella DeVille of, of this movie. Right. Like, I feel like she. She uh, probably watched close and 101 Dalmatians and said, you know what? I'm, I'm basically just going to do that performance. Um, and she does it well. I haven't seen 101 Dalmatians in like 20 years, probably. So I'm not going to actually compare the two performances. But I feel like, you know, when they were like probably doing their like script pre pre reading and stuff like that, you know, like, yeah, this is basically this is this is the real Cruella in, in this movie. And, and I think she nails that sort of like, again, winking almost was like constantly winking and nodding at the camera at just like how ludicrous and stupid um this character or extravagant this character is and but like it works it just like works in the movie overall i i found joel fry and paul walter hauser both pretty endearing um in, in, in a way that i doubt you'd find you know villain henchman in the original 101 dalmatians movie 
to be, but look, that's like, that is what it is, I guess. Um, Mark Strong is uh, virtually anonymous in this movie, uh, which is why you couldn't remember that he, uh, that he was in it at all. Cause he doesn't really have very much to do to your point. Uh, although I suppose he ends up playing a major role. The very yeah, movie, he does but, it towards the end. Yeah. <laughs> but uh, he, you'd be forgiven for forgetting that he was in it. But yeah, I think endearing characters in in Jasper and and, and Horace in this in these performances by Joel Fry and Paul Walter Hauser. But in terms of standouts, I think it'd be Emma Thompson. Yeah, no, I mean, look, I'm not going to say it's the most original performance we've ever seen for you know Emma Thompson's performance. Like you know this sort of high camp British, um, very stuck up obnoxious you know really just fashion yeah, yeah. Fa- fashion you know designer celebrity type um has been done before but it just like you said it just works in the movie like it um fits the the overall vibe and um this move a movie like this needs a good villain right if you're if you're going to make a movie about cruella right who is known as a villain um we need to set up someone even more despicable, right? Uh, to be, uh, you know, the the actual villain here. And I think she, I mean, she is just incredibly evil, right? Like there's there's no sort of um, silver lining or heart or anything to her character whatsoever. Like it's it's pure evil, which I think again is is what you want in a movie where you're trying to convince us that oh hey, you know, this character who you've known your for protagonist many years is not as most killing, evil character. killing dogs. Uh, yeah, she's actually not that bad when you compare her with um, with Baroness, you know, the Baroness. So uh, I think uh, I think they were successful in doing that um, because it it goes over the top. But I like over the top, especially in a movie like this. Um, yeah. And then yeah, the sidekicks are good. You know, I, I you know they, they they make them distinctive enough from each other, which is good. You know, Paul Walter Hauser is kind of the more bumbling, dim-witted, trusting of of you know Estella Cruella throughout. Um, whereas Joel Fry is probably a little bit more cynical. Like once she starts going into the full Cruella mode, he's like, you know, she's moving on from us. She's putting us. Behind You're a mean her. girl, Cruella. Uh, yeah. Um, but of course, we know it's going to work out in the end. Um, and so I, I thought they were they were good. I mean, you know, the humor is probably not quite my type of humor, but um, still got some laughs though. Sure, sure. Um, I imagine that these characters do get some laughs from. The general general movie going audience but um yeah so that's kind of the the performances scott um what did you think about sort of just the story of the movie overall and um the way that they try to sort of circumvent around maybe what we know about cruella you know before going into this movie and you know the, her her past in the 101 dalmatians franchise of course you know dalmatians do have a role in the movie they're not ignored altogether yeah. they end up you know it is the baroness's vicious dalmatians who end up um you know killing cruella's mother um did you did you like that touch or, or you know did you feel that was a little too on the nose eye rolly um what yeah. what did you think about the story in general well, th- that particular plot element that you're talking about that that we learned, you know, 10 minutes into the movie, very early on in the movie. Um, I thought that was fine. Like, look, I'm not going to sit here and say it's like, oh, inspiring piece of of, of storytelling narrative uh, drive. But I think that it, it fit in the broader context. I think everything after that, like, probably doesn't quite fit the broader context, uh, which is why I think people who go into this movie thinking too much about the broader context of 101 Dalmatians is probably doing it wrong. Um, but look, I, I think that the story overall actually like was engaging enough, right? Like the the setup with her mother, you know, being sort of shoved off the cliff by these Dalmatians um, at the sort of command of the Baroness. I think that's a setup that works pretty well. I think that, you know, there's an even bigger twist later on, um, which I thought was like, I don't know. Predictable is not quite, it definitely isn't predictable, but you can kind of like see it. You can kind of like see it like, Oh yeah, yeah, yeah. I see what they did there. Um, and I thought that was good enough. I don't know. Like I, I didn't go into this movie and I'm not going to talk to people about like talk to this, talk to people about this movie in this way, but like the, the plot was engaging enough and did enough to not turn me off about everything else that was going on in the movie. I think that the twist was, the the real twist towards the end of the, towards the final act of the movie worked well and um 
sort of the final act, the heisty elements. Uh, I shouldn't just say in the final act, but like the heisty elements of a, of several at several different points in the movie as sort of uh, you know a, a storytelling feature was quite enjoyable, um, fun. Obviously, it's kind of got hijinks because you do have these you know sidekicks and Horace and Jasper that are not the most competent. Um, so hijinks are going to obviously ensue in certain elements of that, which I thought worked well. I just I, I think one thing I like about this movie is that the story, like the rest of the film, didn't take itself too seriously. Right. Like it, it did. It, it did its job. It did. An, it did enough to keep things moving along um, outside of sort of the techniques and style that was being used. Um, but it never tried to make the story the center of the the center of attention, in my opinion. Some, some people might disagree with me with that, but I don't think that the story was doing anything you know, magical, like magical. Um, you know, may, maybe one point it, it become it becomes more center stage with the twist that I was talking about. But I think that twist was good enough. It worked. I mean, ultimately, it is kind of a heist movie, at least for the last hour or so. And yeah. it, it's funny t- talking about Zack Snyder, right? This movie um, kind of just does everything that um, Army of the Dead, I feel like, failed to do in terms of, you know, it has this uh, satisfying needle drops. Um, and, you know, it has the fun heist stuff that I feel like was was missing from a lot of Army of the Dead, too, despite that being set up as a... Uh, a heist movie, but yeah, you know, it's the heist stuff is, is fun. It's, you know, it's, it's well executed. She didn't get her team together though, Scott, that was the disappointing part. She, yeah, she didn't really, I guess she sort of already had her team, but, um, but yeah, as far as the last twist, it's fine. The, The twist of course we're referring to is that the Baroness is actually Cruella's real Estella, Estella Cruella, whatever her real mother. But, um, that, it's hard not to look at that and think about other Disney IPs, you know, and um, the the desire yeah. that everyone has to be connected, right? We have to tie everything. I'm not referring to anything specifically, of course. I don't. I mean, because what what possibly could could I be talking about here? Where um, you know we we have to make everyone related and connected and come from each other. So it, it might have been one twist too many. Like I feel like it was it was enough for you know to have to have the twist reveal whatever that the baroness right was the one who off cruella's mom and you know was wearing the necklace and stuff like that like you could have just left it there i think i don't don't know that you needed this additional well here's um, the crazy thing scott is that i think we do technically like i mean we we do know estella's last name but what i heard is that in the original cut of this is that her last name was actually gonna be skywalker that's the crazy thing yeah you went there you went there but um (laughs) But yeah, so so that is one element of the plot that I would like. I don't know. I, I feel a little iffy about. Um, I mean, look, I think I you you roll your eyes a little bit over it, and I think that's natural. But like I was sort of alluding to, I think that even in that eye roll moment, like I don't think the film is taking itself too seriously. I don't know. I maybe I'm misreading it. Maybe maybe I'm being too generous towards it. But I still don't think that. I don't yeah, think that's like, oh, look at my fantastic twist I just laid on you, on you suckers. I mean, again, it, it does get, I mean, this is like the darkest part of the movie, though. I will say, because, like, you know, basically we find out that the Baroness, like this, you know, this baby yeah. was born, and the Baroness was basically like, told Mark Strong's character kill to go the, kill baby. the baby. Yeah, yeah t- exactly. tells Mark Strong's character to go kill the baby. I mean, and that's, again, just another step, I feel like, to just, we have to make her as despicable and evil as we can. Um, but yeah, so so I mean, yeah, I don't think the movie is taking itself that seriously at any point. But this probably is, you know, the darkest part of the movie, I guess, so to speak. But um, yeah, it, it, it's fine. But I I could have done without it. There's also sort of like this monologue that. Um, well, let's talk about the voiceover. I think in general, um, sure, that could transition us to that because I mean, you always have strong feelings. I feel like about voiceover, and it's very prominent throughout this movie. What what did you think about? Hey, look, we can we can add this film to the list of films that shouldn't have had as much voiceover as they did. Like, I don't know, I don't know what else to say other other than that. Um, I, again, I think I, I think I'm I'm gaining this reputation of like any voiceover in a movie is bad. I think that's like probably not where I actually stand. I think that it's when, as I've tried to elaborate before, when the film is telling you something via voiceover that you can literally see on the screen, I think that it's like a bit silly. Um, and I think that there are moments where Emma Stone because of the bit, I guess, of, of this film and her narrating it, decides that she needs to tell you what's happening on screen. And I just think that that's like, it's just really, it just really grinds my gears when movies do that. 
Um, but I don't think all the voiceover is like that, though. And I, I don't think all the voiceover um, doesn't work in this movie. I just think that there is a, you know, a good chunk of it that that is that way. And I will be a broken record, I guess, about this in every movie that is the case. But uh, less, less of it, less voiceover. Yeah, I mean, it doesn't stand out uh, to me as much as it does to you. I, I, again, I feel like it fits with the overall aesthetic style of the movie to have sort of um, this this voiceover driving some of the the story as well. Sure. I, I just think that like the needle drops, though, I think that you can like less would have been more. I sure, sure. But yeah, I mean, that, that that's probably that's probably true. Um, what was the other? I, yeah, Enola Holmes, I think, was the other movie that we talked about last year that were like I felt like the voiceover was fine. Like it fit it fit with the style of the movie again. Like sure. it's kind of this fun, free spirited thing where in that movie it was her like talking directly into the camera. But I think it's like the same. Yeah. Um, that that, that movie had her. like the the camp of that movie just didn't it didn't all lie, like align itself. No, perfectly. No, 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 no. Um, not as well as in this yeah. movie. So, I mean, but, Aquaman is like the epitome of the sin of voiceover in a movie. I think. Oh god, yeah, that opening scene. But um, but yeah, no, I, I think that um, less so the voiceover, but there is this one sort of monologue that Cruella has towards the end after everything has been uncovered and yeah. She's like standing outside the mansion, like in the dark, and she like is she's talking out to the loud to herself. No, I don't think she's talking to anyone at this point. Um, oh, okay. If I'm remembering the scene correctly, um, but maybe she's like rehearsing what she's going to say. I don't know, but it, it it did feel like. Oh yeah, maybe. Um, yeah, maybe. It did feel like she was saying too much. Like she was just speaking all of her feelings again, like there, there was no room for subtext or whatever, which, you know, there's probably not room for subtext in much, most of this movie, but that was the one scene where I felt like uh, it went a step too far of like, um, I am going to explain every single emotion that I'm feeling right now and how that is going to drive my, you know, subsequent actions for the rest of this movie. Um, but uh, otherwise I think, you know, it, it, makes sense in the movie um anything else you want to add scott before we uh move into wrap up for cruella just a question about whether or not you felt like the origin of her name uh was better than the origin for han solo deville no uh cruella yes uh, i i do think that um they they set that up from the beginning right it, it makes yeah. sense like why she decides to do it right because her name is Estella, first of all, and we learn like from like the very beginning of the movie that her mom would like refer to her as Cruella when she would get an attitude, basically. Um, mm -hmm. And so I like, you know, it, it comes back around in a way that makes sense, I think. But then the DeVille thing is like she sees a, a Cadillac DeVille basically on the street. And, you know, I think it's one of the Jasper or Horace, one of them, like tells her what the name of it is. I think they steal like, it. They steal, they steal the car. Yeah. She's like, I like that. Um, that, that was a little eye rolly, I think the, the DeVille part of it. Um, but Cruella is, is better than the Han Solo. Like it. I, I, I definitely think so. What do you, what did you think? Yeah, no, the, the Cruella thing was worked in well. Um, it didn't feel like a gimmick. The DeVille thing mm -hmm. was like definitely, definitely a one-off gimmick. They just couldn't help themselves. And they didn't even need to like, oh, it, they didn't all. even need to explain DeVille at all. Right. I mean, she's Cruella. Like. I I never once thought about the fact that well the we sequel had... is going to be called Cruella Deville so is it really or you just... no no I'm just making that up it could be huh? but yeah there it is a sequel be. I guess maybe that's the place to finish on Scott do you look forward to the sequel I think I do to an extent I I mean look when we were watching I think we were watching something together when when this news got announced and I was just like it is hilarious that they have already greenlit a sequel to this movie it's like unbelievable um i mean that's can't. that's the movie that's the movie landscape today i mean anything that does yeah. like you know remotely well i mean this didn't even it i mean i don't even really exactly know what kind of numbers it did but i feel like so i think after this weekend it's made 60 million which is, i mean its budget was much higher than that um well 60 million i think is a good return for this for this yeah. movie and in, in, in the climate that we're in obviously but it's not like it made its money back um so it's an it's sure. an interesting choice to to green light it so quickly but I think the reason why I am excited to an extent is because I think Emma Stone really did a good job with this character. She has obviously 
I mean, I say obvious. If she's not returning <laughs> as as Cruella in in the in the pre, in the in the prequel sequel, then they're doing something wrong. But yeah, I think the fact that she would presumably be returning and she did such a good job with this first one, and the fact that Craig Gillespie has already been confirmed um, to be directing the sequel, and Tony McNamara, although to less I don't really care about the writer of this movie, but Tony McNamara is also returning, who co-wrote the script with Dana Fox, is going to be returning. So I like I have faith that the, that the second movie like there's no reason why the second movie won't be just as fun as the first one, I guess. Um, so as long as the sort of ethos and vibe of the movie is maintained, which I would fully expect that it would be, like what's not to be excited about? Like I had a great time watching this movie. I totally rewatch it. Um, so in you know with that same spirit, if, it, if that spirit is contained in the second one, why wouldn't I be excited about the second one? I, I, like. I don't think that Craig Gillespie is trying to create some like cinematic duology masterpiece over here. Like, I think he knows what movies he's making. Yeah. I mean, look, uh, you know, I, I will say, you know, take it with a grain of salt because I, I was very skeptical about this movie and it ended up paying off. But this to me is just like the definition of a movie that does not need a sequel. Like it's, sure, it's I a agree, fun totally. one-off origin story. We got the origin story, right? Like it's not connected to the, 101 Dalmatians universe. So, you know, don't really think about it too much. I mean, it is technically move, but, move yeah. on with our lives. Yeah, it is. It is. But you know, the continuity yeah. is, it's part of Canon Scott, but, but um, it, like, it's just the definition of like, they did, they did again, they did the best version of this that they could possibly do in my opinion with this movie. Yeah. Why are they trying again? Like this is, this is again, more fun, Scott. That's why they are trying again. But I just don't like that. This has become the reality of the movie landscape or like anything like this that does even semi better than expected um is going to be greenlit a sequel like these these people craig gillespie like emma stone paul walter hauser all these people yes i'm sure they're going to have other projects going on at least the actors are but um they're they're so talented i want to see them do other things i want to see them outside of this world as fun as it was to be in this world for two hours and 15 minutes I don't think I need more. I, like I don't know where this can go in the future. Um, Scott, I think, I think I think you're you're create you're, you're committing a sin right now. Is that now you're starting to overthink the sequel? <laughs> like where can they go with the sequel? They didn't go anywhere with the first one, <laughs> so I don't think they're going to go anywhere with it. Well, no, but I mean, they, you know, they made a fun. They they told the origin of Cruella. They had like a fun, you know, fashion heist movie. Yeah. We got a good villain out of it. What I mean, how can they do a better version of this? Like, I, I just, I don't, I don't really see, see it. But. Well, look, I, I don't disagree with what you're saying. And if I were, if I, if someone asked me, do you want Craig Gillespie to direct a sequel to Krill or do you want Craig Gillespie to do something different? I'd be like, Craig Gillespie should go do something different. Like, that's definitely the answer to that question. But I think that, again, this is, I think this goes back to even the conversation we were having last week. Like, if this is the movie that Craig Gillespie is making next, I'm excited for it. Like, that's, that's the truth. Like, if I have to accept the reality that this is what's going to be done next, I might as well be excited because I, mean, yeah, I had a good yes, time. With this. I just, I just don't accept the reality. I guess <laughs> you, you disagree I'm with saying. your own question on premise. <laughs> yeah, I, uh, I don't accept that this is our reality. I think we should, we should ask for more. We should expect more. We should want more from yeah. our creators, good. our studios. Our good news, Scott. Is I think they're all on Twitter, so you can go tweet them. I plan on it. Um, all right, Scott. Let's uh, let's wrap up on Cruella. What was your favorite scene or moment from this movie? Yeah, I really enjoyed um, the the punk rock concert. Dang it! Why did you have to gotcha. take that? You knew I was going to say that. I think is that the one where she has the future spray painted on her face? I can't remember. I think so. There's some like really funny. There's some like really funny gags that they have Cruella just like dunking on on the Baroness. The the garbage truck one is another good one. Um, that's a, that's a yeah. great one. So yeah, th- there's just like the. It's like a, it's like basically a montage sequence, right? It's like something that you get like Happy Death Day with like the montage kill sequences. You get this montage of like Corella dunking on the Baroness, and I think they're all hilarious. They're all really good. Um, yeah, really I couldn't those. believe I was like watching a Disney movie at that rock concert scene. Like it was like pretty. It, it it's like a freaking Slayer Metallica show or something going on out there with like the whole aesthetics of this. And Look, that was the moment that uh, Corella created punk rock, Scott. Yeah, I guess so. I guess, I guess so. But um, yeah, no, that was kind of the one I was going to say. I guess 
to, to pick out like an individual moment that I really liked early on when we're still following child Estella and she's at the party, right? Where her mom eventually ends up dying a whole, you know, shenanigans breaks out in the main room in the ballroom and she ends up on the chandelier and there's a shot where she like swings up and it's like, it's slow motion. Oh, and we yeah. get her like face. She avoids like, the right in the camera as yeah. Uh, yeah. And the dog, right. The dogs are jumping right behind her. Like, nipping at her heels but she swings up and um which was just like a cool moment of stylization again um that i, th- I thought really worked so um, i forget what song is playing during that during that scene i will say like as good as the needle drops were in a lot of places i feel like i don't remember like the specific song to moment in the yeah. same way that i did with i tanya where like i can hear the soundtrack for i tanya certain songs and remember where they are in the well, Scott, we, we also haven't talked at all that Nicholas Brattel did the score for this. There's not much of a score. I mean, again, the movie is so over, oversaturated. I mean, not again, not oversaturated, but it's saturated with, uh, with you know, 70s rock that um, there's not a whole lot of room for, for score. But yes, Nicholas Brattel was involved. Um, all right, Scott, let's put a score on it. Uh, what do you give Cruella out of 10? 7.9. Exact same score, Scott, 7.9. Um, this We're on the same page. Movie, again, it's... It definitely exceeded my expectations. Um, it was a fun time that I don't know if I'll rewatch it or, or any. I mean, if I had to rewatch it, I certainly wouldn't mind. Um, it's not something I'm clamoring to go back to, but it is much better than a Cruella DeVille origin story live action adaptation has any right to be. So yeah, um, credit to everyone involved for that. Um, all right, Scott, that should do it for our review of Cruella. We're going to take a short break now. When we come back, Uh, We're going to have a few uh, news items, some potential casting news um, for a couple of big projects um, coming soon to talk about. Uh, So please stay tuned. Uh, We will discuss those right after the break. Welcome back to this episode of Some Like It, Scott. Scott, a couple of news items, a couple of casting news items specifically to hit before we finish the show today. And I'm just going to jump right into mine because, um, as you can imagine, I was extremely excited when I heard this news. Um, Odd news, though it uh, may be, as certainly was not something that I expected. And, you know, that's honestly what I said last week, talking about Rina Sawayama being in John Wick um, Chapter 4. Um, out of nowhere casting of a musician um, that I'm a huge fan of. And that's exactly what I'm going to be talking about today. And and out of nowhere casting of a musician that I'm an even bigger fan of than maybe any other musician. Um, And that being Taylor Swift Uh, and Taylor Swift has been cast in the untitled David O. Russell movie um, that has already been filmed, I believe. Uh, it, it's it's already finished, I think, from from what I understand. But um, that the movie already, of course, had a, a hugely stacked cast. Um, you know, chief among them: Christian Bale, Robert De Niro, Margot Robbie, Anya Taylor Joy, um, Zoe Saldana, Mike Myers, John David Washington, Michael Shannon, Rami Malek, Chris Rock. You know, the list goes on and on. Uh, David O. Russell, for whatever reason, despite being, I just feel like a fairly average, mediocre director in a lot of senses. He's able to get big casts to his movies, um, and not to mention some of the stuff that um, has been coming out about him uh, and his behavior on set uh, in the past is is also not the best. But putting that aside, um, Scott, I, I don't know what else I have to say except that um, putting Taylor Swift and Annie Taylor-Joy in the same movie is something that is almost guaranteed to cost me a visit to the hospital. And Margot Robbie. Don't forget Margot Robbie. Um, and Margot Robbie, yeah. Um, I, I think the paramedics will need to be ready um, when I go see this movie. I think they need, they'll need to be outside the theater. You should just go it. see it in the hospital. You should just go check into the hospital and then stream uh, it. Yeah, that's the probably the, the thing to do. But yeah, I mean, it's a, it's a, weir- it's a you know, weird bit of casting, I guess. I, I can't imagine that she would have a major role given the, the you know, amount of huge names that are in this movie. But you never know. Obviously, she's done a little bit of acting before Valentine's Day, The Giver, um, maybe one or two others that I'm not thinking about. But cats. Um, 
No, no, she wasn't in Cats. <laughs> I, I don't remember that at all. Um, but uh, yeah, I, I imagine she wanted to try and rebound from Cats. So she's doing so, this movie now and um, that will probably be getting Oscar attention or at least will be aiming for Oscar attention. Hey, it's uh, a period David comedy film. David O. Russell generally does now, uh, his recent period films at least. But yeah, uh, I mean, I'm excited in the sense that uh, I love Taylor Swift and support her in anything that she does. I don't know, again, what what kind of role it will be or whether she will be good in the movie. Um, and also, again, David O. Russell is not a director that I necessarily love, but I'm just happy to see her in this world. And again, alongside people that I love, like um, Anya Taylor-Joy and Margot Robbie and John David Washington, um, you know, could, could be something really special if um, if David O. Russell get out of his own way maybe if david arrest doesn't scream obscenities every day on set to this to the cast yeah basically that uh any thoughts on this news scott look i mean i was already excited about this movie um david russell being you know the director for one of my favorite comedies of all time in silver linings playbook i will say that it was a bit sobering to see all the news about or i should say rumors allegations i don't know what the right word for that would be Mm -hmm. about his conduct on set, although I don't know if that happened on Silver Linings Public necessarily, but certainly on Three Kings um, and um, American Hustle. American Hustle, yeah. Yeah, seemed pretty rough. And I think you can extrapolate from there. That's probably how he acts on most of the sets uh, that he directs a movie on, which I found that fairly concerning, especially since he seemed to pretty much rip into one of my, if not my favorite actress uh, currently working on American on American Hustle set. Um, so not a big fan of that. That definitely tempered my expectations a little bit, not because this has changed the movie whatsoever, but just because, oh man, I don't, can can I like these movies as much as I once did anymore? I don't know. Um, but look, it's cool. It's exciting. I mean, I like Taylor Swift certainly won't go as far to say as I like her as much as you do. Um, but look, she's one of my favorite singer songwriters, artists out there in the music space. And, you know, it's, a treat to see people that you really enjoy listening to and seeing be in movies that you're already excited about. So in that sense, I am excited. Uh, but I don't like, this just feels like a, like a bit of like a glamor casting. I don't really know why she's, she's in this movie, frankly. Um, this must be like a cameo. Like, honestly, like the rest of this cast was announced like six months ago. Like, why wouldn't you? I mean, we don't even really know what the movie is about. Do we? It's a doctor and a lawyer form an unlikely partnership. It's a period, I mean, maybe, period piece. Maybe she plays herself. Who knows? Maybe she just kind of. She, no way she can't play herself. This is a period piece. It's from like. Oh, it's a period piece. Okay, it's from like decades ago. Yeah. Okay. Yeah. I didn't, I didn't realize that. But, <laughs> oh, uh, yeah. Yeah. Maybe she just, you know, in, in this, in that sense, maybe she'll just like show up as a musician or something in one, one scene. And sing yeah. A song Pull, pulls an Ed Sheeran from yesterday or whatever. Yesterday. Yeah. Um, <laughs> Maybe so. But uh, moving on from that, Scott, uh, some news that you wanted to talk about involves the next Creed movie um, and someone who has yeah. been cast as a potential adversary for Michael B. Jordan's character in that movie. Uh, tell us more about it. Absolutely. And there's a funny connection, actually, to this Canterbury Glass movie, which is the title of David O. Russell's next film. And it's that Michael B. Jordan, once upon a time, was supposed to be in this film and he had to drop out for, I assume, what is a scheduling conflict course that's what they always say even if it wasn't a scheduling conflict maybe he doesn't like david or russell it seems like actors and actresses would be valid and not liking david or russell um nevertheless they get these giant casts anyway uh yeah so he was once upon a time in this movie then was replaced by you know john david washington who i'm not going to sit here and say john david washington is as good as michael b jordan but he's a fitting replacement i like john david washington but michael b jordan obviously the star of the creed section of the rocky franchise is going to be, I think he's he himself is directing Creed 3, isn't he? Stephen Capel Jr. is not coming back. Michael B. Jordan is directing. Yeah, yeah, yeah. yeah. So he's directing Creed 3, and this week there have been rumors, uh, strong rumors, about who he will face off against in the ring, and that is Jonathan Majors. Uh, last year he became quite well known for his roles in um, The Five Bloods, where he played the son of one of, of one of, I, I guess, yeah, he was, he was the son of, Oh, Del- Delroy Lindo. Delroy Lindo's son. Yeah, he played Delroy Lindo's son in The Five Bloods. And he also played one of the leads in Lovecraft Country on HBO 
limited series. Obviously, the year before, he was in Last Black Man in San Francisco, which was sort of his indie breakout role. But he's been building this sort of buzz and and rumors um, of being, you know, uh, the villain, ironically so, in the next Ant-Man movie. I believe he's going to play Kang the Conqueror in the next Ant-Man movie, which some people even said this is Kang the Conqueror is a type of role that might even span multiple movies. So he might even be like a Thanos-like like villain in that sense, which I think that would be surprising, but uh, would be really cool. Absolutely. And then he's also now potentially playing the villain in another major franchise. And that is uh, this sort of rumored uh, adversary to Michael B. Jordan in Creed 3. So, Scott, I don't think this is as big of a deal as playing a Marvel villain, but this is a pretty big deal still. And I think this is sort of cementing Jonathan Major's place in Hollywood. Um, I hope he doesn't always just get cast as the villain, but I'm excited for him to be in the spotlight in these roles especially in, in, a, in a film like Creed, like, I don't know, Ant- Ant-Man and the Wasp, like, as a villain, you're not going to get a chance to really show much of who you are. But I think in Creed, especially depending on how Creed 3 goes and how it sort of tilts and what the narrative arc is, there's a potential for him to actually have quite a bit to do in Creed 3. Uh, obviously, that wasn't the case necessarily for Drago's son in Creed 2. I didn't think there was very much going on there um, or in Creed 1. But it's the type of movie where, depending on how they structure the narrative, there is there's the potential for something there. And I hope that Jonathan Majors has that chance to sort of be in the spotlight and also show how great of an actor he is, because that's all I've seen from him and what I've seen. Yeah, I mean, look, we say he's a villain. We don't I mean, we don't necessarily know that that's the case. I mean, Michael that's B. Jordan may be he's just an adversary him. in the ring. If yeah, you look at, you know, if you look at the Rocky franchise, I mean, Apollo Creed is who Rocky fights in the first movie and they end up becoming villain. good friends. Um, and if, even in the last movie, you know, yeah, maybe Victor Drago wasn't like the greatest developed character of all time, but they did try to give him a little bit of a redemption arc. Right. And um, talk about the pressure that was put on him by his father and relationship with his mother and all of that. So, um, you know, that there is, there could be a little bit more nuance to it than him simply being a a quote unquote villain here, but yeah, no, uh, it's interesting casting. You know, I've only know him from defied bloods. I haven't seen those other projects that you um, talked about. Um, so I don't have a ton of experience with his work, but I know that he's well regarded. I think it, it'll be cool to see two black actors leading a movie like this. Um, you know, a, a, a big blockbuster that is certain to do a, a good amount of money. Um, mm-hmm. I, you know, I think that's that's cool to see. Yeah. Um, and there's a big vacancy in this movie just to go to this point. Because like, like we like Sylvester Sloan has said he is not coming back yeah. to play to play Rocky in this movie. And so there, there's definitely like a, a vacancy there for another key character to be developed. And I think that Jonathan majors like could be that maybe they'll go even more into the Tessa Thompson character. I don't know, but um, yeah. Look, I mean, you know, add this to the list of another sequel that I'm skeptical about whether they needed to make it just because oh, I mean, yeah, uh, Creed two was so satisfying and ended. I mean, it would, it would could have been a perfect ending to the whole story. Um, yep. But you know, with Rocky not coming back, like, maybe there's a chance there because like, you know, I think Rocky finished like, again, that's part of why that was a satisfying ending and why um, it felt like they didn't need to go any further is because Rocky, you know, he shows up at his son's door at the end of the movie and, you know, they sort of reconnect. And so if Rocky's not going to be in it, then yeah. Okay. That kind of makes sense. Like he got his satisfying ending. Um, Now let's, you know, try to try to do the same for, for Adonis, but um, yeah, I mean, look, I, I really like both the Creed movies a lot. So, I mean, I'm not like going to be too disappointed about a new one coming out. But, yeah. uh, you know, circumstances, again, um, do make me a little skeptical. But yeah. Fantastic. And and like, look, I'm excited for Michael B. Jordan to be able to direct his own movie. But I think it tells you all you need to know about Creed 3 that like the choice is for Michael B. Jordan to direct it. And like maybe he ends up being a great director. I'm I'm making a big presumption there. But like. There's a certain trajectory that you're on when you go from Ryan Coogler to Stephen Capel Jr., who has he even done another movie. I don't even know. Stephen Capel Jr. had not. But yeah, I mean, that's, you know, Stephen Capel Jr. did a good job. Absolutely. And then but then then you're going to like self-directing the movie. I just it's like a certain arc that's like mildly concerning that like even the original Rocky franchise like like went on that adventure. Um, yeah, I mean, Stallone directed like all of the sequels after. No, that's what I'm saying. Uh, and like the first one. You know, that, that doesn't mean that it can't turn out well, especially when you really when you really are at the core of what the franchise is and you know what the audience is coming for and you know how to deliver that story. It can be good. But, you know, it, it, I think you're on it kind of puts you on 
unsure footing from the start when that's the trajectory you're going as opposed to like, you know, maintaining Ryan Coogler or getting another more famous, more renowned yeah. director. Yeah. And I should note John G. Abelson did come back and direct Rocky five. So there I will amend my earlier statement, but Stallone did do two, three and four, but Anyway, uh, yeah, I think that should just about do it, Scott, for this episode of Some Like It. Scott, uh, where can our listeners find you on social media? At Shelton 2013 uh, And I am at Scarby Dent, Twitter, Letterboxd. Find me over there. Um, and uh, we hope you've enjoyed this episode of the podcast. If you have and you'd like to support us, don't forget about our Patreon page at patreon.com slash media plug pods. Even if you can't support us over there, don't forget to write to... <laughs> Don't forget to write. Uh, you can write us a letter hey, if you want. You can write us, that's fine. If you have our addresses. Um, don't forget to like, rate, review, subscribe, do all of the things that you do on your preferred podcast app. And we hope that you will be back for our next episode next week when when we will be discussing uh, John M. Chu's adaptation of Lin-Manuel Miranda's breakthrough musical on Broadway, In the Heights. Uh, but until then, for Scott Shelton, I'm Scott Harvey. We'll see you down the road. Mm-hmm.